A dream wedding. Two young people with a wonderful future ahead of them. A man loved by everyone and a religious girl from a traditional family. Cody and Jordan were married in June 2013, but little did they know that tragedy would strike their community when Cody was found at the bottom of a 100 metres cliff just eight days after their wedding. This is the story of Cody Johnson and Jordan Graham. Cody Johnson was born on April 8th, 1988 in San Jose, California. He grew up living with his mother, Sherry Johnson. The two had a very close and loving relationship. Sherry wanted him to have the best possible opportunities, and so they relocated to an attractive rural community so that Cody could have a safer, happier life. So, in 1992, when he was just four years old, they moved to a small town called Kalispell in northwestern Montana. Cody adapted well and had a great childhood there. He enjoyed outdoor sports and thrived in such a healthy environment. Kalispell is located in the Flathead Valley, which has a lake and is close to Glacier National Park. This park is huge, with over a thousand kilometres of trails traversing the northern part of the Rocky Mountains. That's right, more than 1,000 kilometres of trail. As a teenager, in typical North American fashion, Cody liked to go out shooting and mountain bike riding with his friends. He was passionate about cars. Despite being such a charismatic young man with lots of friends and an excellent family life, Cody felt that he was missing something as he entered adulthood. A great love. He yearned for a woman with whom he could share his life and raise a family. He confided in some friends that he really wanted to find a nice religious girl to make this dream come true. In 2011, at a Halloween party, when Cody was 23 years old, he met a girl named Jordan, who was 20 years old. Jordan Graham was born in 1991 and had a personality almost opposite to Cody's. She was shy, introverted and reserved, but she had a fun side too, which people discovered when they got to know her better. She had grown up in a very traditional family, with strong religious morals and a firm belief in chastity. Since she was a teenager, she had worked as a nanny for several families in the local community. Children were her passion. Cody and Jordan struck up a friendship. For Cody, it seemed like he had found the girl of his dreams. Jordan, on the other hand, was in no rush to enter a relationship, as she wanted someone who was at least as dedicated to the church as she was. Therefore, Cody, who was not so religious, decided to get more involved in religion to be closer to his love. This proved to be successful because in November 2011, they officially started dating, almost one month after they met. Celibacy was important to Jordan, that is, not having sexual relations before marriage. Cody accepted this. He really was in love. The relationship blossomed and the couple got engaged in December 2012. Jordan's friends were surprised. They did not believe she was ready for a lifelong relationship at age 21. Furthermore, many claimed that they never saw the couple hug or kiss in public. 
This could have been for religious reasons, but they said they had not even seen them holding hands. This seemed very strange for a loving couple in the first year of their relationship. Even so, things progressed and preparations for the wedding were in full swing. Cody was very excited, apparently more excited than his bride. They set the date for June 29th, 2013 and life went on. They wanted this day to be special and Jordan even wrote an original song for their first dance at the wedding reception. They hired a composer called Elizabeth Shea to help with the composition. She would also record the song and spend a few days with the couple so that together they could create the perfect matrimonial composition. The big day arrived and it was a beautiful outdoor ceremony in Kalispell. Jordan was smiling, but her behaviour seemed strange. She rarely looked her new husband in the eye. After the ceremony, she admitted to having reservations about the marriage to some of her friends. She said that she didn't know if she was doing the right thing. They reassured her that it was an emotional moment and that it was normal for her to be nervous about their future. Cody had confided to his friends that he was very happy and that he was looking forward to consummating their marriage on their wedding night. The couple spent the first night of their honeymoon in Big Fork, a small town just a 30-minute drive away. The next morning, Jordan exchanged text messages with her friend and bridesmaid, Kimberly Martinez. I don't even know if all of this was the right thing to do anymore. A lot happened last night. I really don't know. The next week, they returned to the city and their new home. They spent the day together and attended church that night. But something was off. Jordan looked dejected. On Sunday, the 7th of July, Cody had planned a golf outing with friends but cancelled it to spend the day with his new wife. At around 5pm, the couple and some friends went to eat at Dairy Queen. They stayed there until around 8pm and then left to go home. The next day, Monday, Cody was supposed to return to work, but he didn't show up. Cameron, his boss, good friend and also best man, was concerned. Cody was always one of the first to arrive in the morning. He had not mentioned that he would be late, much less absent. He called Cody, but no one answered. As the day went on and there was no sign of Cody, Cameron's concerns grew. He went to his friend's house but found no one. He felt something was wrong and entered the house to look for some clue as to what could have happened. He found Cody's phone on the garage floor and that was definitely a cause for concern. Jordan was also still incommunicado. After speaking to Cody's friends and family, Cameron realised that they were last seen at 8pm when they left the diner with friends. He immediately went to the police to file a report about their disappearance. Remember, this was all just eight days after the wedding. But that same night, Jordan showed some signs of life. She responded to a message from a friend who was concerned about her and Cody. She just replied that Cody had left the house the previous night but that she didn't know who he left with or where he had gone. 
She said she just saw him getting into a car with some friends, sitting in the back seat of a black car. After that, she didn't see him again. The next morning, the police went to the house to search for clues as to their whereabouts. Jordan's reaction was very strange. She didn't answer their questions clearly. She seemed upset at all the people being in the house and walked around alone. She was so restless that she even took off her wedding ring and threw it away, and she did all this in front of everyone. The police asked her to attend the police station the following day to make a statement. So on the 9th, she did. Jordan said that on Sunday night they returned home at around 8 at night. Cody received a call from a friend visiting from out of town who wanted to meet up for a drink and a chat. She said she didn't know who this friend was. Actually, she said had not asked what his name was because she didn't want to be invasive. That was all she knew. She had no idea where he went or when he would return. The police continued to investigate the case, but it grew stranger by the day. They worked on the hypothesis that he could have fled, just gone away, but they needed a reason. They even suspected that Cody was involved in drugs and that these friends were drug dealers. There was in fact a history of drug trafficking in the region. On the 10th, Jordan was called in again to make a statement, and this time the questions were somewhat tougher. The detectives no longer trusted her. Don't you think it's strange that it was a friend who reported your husband's disappearance? Why didn't you do this? Jordan said she believed that he was going to come back, and she also thought that if she had filed a missing persons report, he would be angry at her in his return. The officer asked her if she had at least called him the next day, but she said no. Jordan left the interrogation room and Cody's mother, Sherry, gave her statement. She brought with her the call report for her son's phone and they checked for the call he was supposed to have received around 8pm. The police found a call from a number in the city of Washington and called back. The owner of this number was a friend of Cody's named Jose. This guy said he had called him on Sunday to let him know that he had found the tool he borrowed from Cody. He thought he had lost it and had said he was going to buy another one, but on Sunday he found it and told Cody not to worry. Despite the random content of the conversation, the police investigated more about Jose and discovered that his wife went into labour right after that call and that he spent the entire night and early next morning at the hospital. In other words, he had a solid alibi. The police turned their full attention to Jordan. In the early evening of that same Tuesday, the 10th, Jordan spoke to a friend called Hannah, saying she had received an email at 9.40 that morning from someone called Tony, but she'd only opened it that night. This email said the following... My name is Tony. There is no bother looking for Cody anymore. He is gone. I saw your post on Twitter and thought I would email you. He had come with some buddies and met up with me on Sunday night in Columbia Falls. 
He was saying he needed to be with his buddies for a bit and take them for a joyride. Three of the guys came back saying that they had gone for a ride in the woods somewhere and Cody got out of the car and went for a little hike and they are positive he fell and he is dead, Jordan. I don't know who the guys were, but they took off, so call off the missing persons report. Cody is gone for sure. Tony. Hey, você se interessa por crimes reais, serial killers, coisas macabras e tem um senso de humor um tanto quanto sórdido? Se sim, você não está sozinho. Se você precisa de um lugar recheado de pessoas como você, venha conhecer o podcast Pátria Amada Criminal. Todas as semanas tentamos entender o pior da humanidade. Nesse processo a gente ri, chora, fica brava, fofoca, porque afinal de contas é assim que a gente fala quando está entre amigos. Suas novas melhores amigas trevosas estão aqui no Pátria Amada Criminal. Columbia Falls is a location within the Glacier National Park. Hannah immediately said that Jordan needed to take this content to the police. The way Jordan behaved at the police station demonstrated that she wanted their investigation to end. In addition, she did not seem at all shaken by her husband's disappearance and likely death. It wasn't difficult for the police to find this email somewhat suspicious. The police kept a copy of the correspondence to send to the investigative IT team to identify the origin of the message. Regarding the park, they needed to find out the location of his fall. But they didn't even know where to start. Because as I said previously, Glacier National Park has more than 1,000 kilometers of accessible trails. Jordan and her friend Hannah decided to go to the park alone, to try to find something. But during the journey, Hannah was surprised by Jordan's behavior. She was smiling as she drove with her arm out the window with her hand open to feel the wind, not showing any sign of concern about what they might encounter. As it was late, they didn't stay long and soon returned home. On Thursday the 11th, some other friends decided to accompany Jordan on a new search. En route, her friends suggested stopping at a place to start looking, but she refused saying that they should continue their climb as she felt that Cody wasn't there. They climbed practically to the top. When they arrived at the parking lot, Jordan got out of the car and said, This is a very special place for me and Cody. If he's anywhere in this park, he's definitely here. The location was steep, dangerous, And in the middle of the path, Jordan started to say that she felt the presence of a Holy Spirit who was guiding her along the correct path and that Cody was definitely there. The friends looked at each other in confusion. Suddenly, at the edge of the cliff, Jordan pointed down and shouted, There! Cody is there! The friends in disbelief saw a body at the bottom of the cliff almost 100 meters down. The police were called and the location was so difficult to reach that a helicopter had to be called in for the recovery. An officer descended using a rope thrown by the mobile aircraft to raise the victim up. Cody was identified at the morgue. Although he had some injuries on his arm, the way the body was found clearly showed that he had hit his head on the ground. 
Cody's family and friends were devastated at the news of his death. However, to everyone's astonishment, Jordan's reaction at her husband's funeral was somewhat surreal. Amid the sadness, Jordan spent the whole time looking at her cell phone. People began to suspect that the widow may have been responsible for the crime. Later, Jordan's friend Kimberly went to the police. She said things she hadn't said before because she herself didn't want to believe that Jordan was a murderer. She believed that deep down, Jordan didn't want to marry Cody. Jordan seemed to have so many doubts about her decision, especially on the wedding day. It was clear that she did not want to have sexual relations with him, even that night, and she was afraid of being pressured into breaking their celibacy. She'd sent her a message on the wedding day saying something like, I'm supposed to be happy, but I'm not. I told Cody I'm having my period so I don't have to consummate the marriage. If he tries to do something, I'll freak out. Then Kimberly replied, You need to talk to him. He is your husband now. Tell him how you feel and he will understand. And she replied, If I tell him how I feel, I will break his heart. Jordan also sent another message to Kimberly on July 5th. He held me very tightly last night with his hand on my face. He was very angry. I managed to escape and run, but he scratched me with the car keys. Shortly after the funeral and Kimberly's statement, the police's results came back with regard to the tracking of Tony's email. It was sent from Jordan's stepfather's computer, and they later discovered that Jordan had been at his house when the message was sent. The email account was created minutes before the message was sent, on July 10th, 2013, the day that Jordan was last interviewed by the police. Additionally, cell towers indicated that the couple was in the park that night at exactly 9.17. The police checked the parking lot security cameras and identified the two arriving into the park on the night Cody disappeared. This explained how Jordan knew exactly where her husband's body was, in the middle of that immense mountainous park, which she had claimed was guidance by the Divine Holy Spirit. As the park is under federal jurisdiction, the case was passed to the FBI, including all the substantial evidence found. In July, they arrested Jordan. At the time of her arrest, she did not show any emotion. Only minutes later, when the evidence against her was presented by federal agents, mainly printouts of images of her and Cody in the park's parking lot on the night of the crime, she burst into tears. When she calmed down, she began to tell a new version of the facts. She had not been happy with their plan to get married and had decided to tell him. They fought. They decided to take a break and go to the park to walk and relax. They loved going to that place. Then they argued and fought again. Cody started yelling at her very loudly and held her arm tightly and she said to herself, No, it's enough. I won't let that happen again. So on impulse she defended herself and pushed him. He fell from the cliff edge and she left and went home. She knew she would be accused of what had happened and that's why she had to give herself some time. 
On Monday, she disappeared because she was thinking about what she could tell people so they wouldn't suspect her, but she got lost in her thoughts. She ended by saying that she had not premeditated this. It was an accident. Jordan remained in prison while awaiting trial, but her lawyers filed a request stating that the case was a crime of passion and that the victim's death was possibly an accident, and because of this, the accused did not represent a risk to society. Thus, on September 9th, their request was accepted and Jordan was released from confinement. She had to wear an electronic ankle bracelet and remain under house arrest until her trial date. This outraged Cody's friends and family. But a month later, in October, she was indicted for first and second degree murder and returned to prison. The trial began in December 2013, five months after the death. As always, Jordan remained apathetic throughout the hearings. On the 12th, knowing the risk of receiving a very large sentence, she changed her statement where she maintained her innocence and declared herself guilty. She said, What I did was reckless, but it was an accident. I didn't really realise where we were, how dangerous that place was. I just reacted to defend myself. It was all a mistake. But even so, I understand the consequences of my actions and I plead guilty. The trial was not difficult for the prosecution and the defence did not have many arguments, other than simply maintaining that the defendant was guilty but had acted in self-defence. But all the lies she had been telling her friends, family and the police did nothing to help her defence. Thus, the following year... On March 27, 2014, Jordan was sentenced to 30 years in prison without parole. She showed no feelings of remorse and did not apologise to Cody's family. Cody Johnson, wanted to meet a special woman and start a family, ended up marrying a person who probably had unresolved personal issues and who was responsible for taking his life, just eight days after his wedding. Hey, você se interessa por crimes reais, serial killers, coisas macabras e tem um senso de humor um tanto quanto sórdido? Se sim, você não está sozinho. Se você precisa de um lugar recheado de pessoas como você... Venha conhecer o podcast Pátria Amada Criminal. Todas as semanas tentamos entender o pior da humanidade. Nesse processo a gente ri, chora, fica brava, fofoca, porque afinal de contas é assim que a gente fala quando está entre amigos. Suas novas melhores amigas trevosas estão aqui no Pátria Amada Criminal. 